Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Listen for the word of our Lord. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the, new, the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence in, through faith in him. I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you, they are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to abundantly accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. By your grace and in your mercy, we pray that you would allow these words to come, point to the precious word just read, and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. In our lives, there is a dividing line between what you feel that you have to do and what you feel that you get to do. When I was a kid, my parents would take my family on vacations every year, and sometimes when things were tight, we would go to places like Williamsburg or maybe Washington, D.C. And at other times, we were very fortunate to go to places like Hawaii and Germany. And there was one trip when I was in 10th grade where we were going to the Grand Canyon, two weeks of driving all over Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, and Utah. Two weeks stuck in the center between my two older sisters for long rides through the desert. And as you might imagine, I was not so excited. And so as a good teenager, I gave off a little bit of an attitude that I really didn't want to go on this trip since I know this attitude escaped you as a teenager. You make it known in your body expressions and facial expressions that you're not happy with those plans. Can't I just stay at my best friend's house? And the answer, of course, was no. You had to go on this vacation. I carried on for a bit until I was talking with my best friend. His family was a shore kind of family. Every summer for vacation, they went down the shore. And by the 10th grade, the only time that he had ever left New Jersey was to go on a field trip to the Museum of Natural History in New York City. And he said, how cool is it that you get to go to all these places? You know, in an instant, my attitude began to evaporate. This vacation that I felt that I had to go on was for my friend a vacation that he wished that he could go on. There is a dividing line between what we feel that we have to do and what we get to do. 
Maybe we sit with a friend and complain about how we have to drive our children all over the place. We've got to take them to soccer practice and to the library and to dentist appointments. And you sit there and you talk with a friend of yours for a while and you realize that that person sitting across from you has no children and desperately wishes that it wasn't so. And while you feel you have to cart your children around, she might put it a different way. You get to drive them around. You crawl out of bed in the morning to go to work and you begin to lament over all the things that you have to do. You've got to have that meeting with the client that you don't want to see. You've got to get on a plane at the end of the day. You won't see your family until the end of the week. And as you leave your driveway in those pre-dawn hours, your beams shine on the house across the street from you. And you remember that your neighbor has not had a job in months. And maybe he is up and he is looking out his window saying he gets to work, go to work today. There's a dividing line between what you feel that you have to do and what you get to do. It was 500 years ago that a young German monk took it upon himself to nail onto the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral 95 theses. 95 protestations about what the church's reading of the Bible meant. And little did that monk Martin Luther know that when he pounded his nails into that door, he was pounding a crack into the, Western, the history of Western civilization. The world and certainly the church would never be the same from that moment forward. Human beings arguably would never be the same. In 1517, a dam broke. Protestant Christianity spread all across Europe and later in, across the world in a flood of tributaries, each with its own distinct understanding of how best to worship God and how best that we respond to God. Volumes have been written on the Reformation and one sermon would never suffice to touch its history, including our own Presbyterian history. Just one drive though through West Essex, you can see the Episcopal Church and the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Evangelical Free Church, and in all these places, it's enough to show how significant of a movement that the Reformation was. Even the Catholic Church changed in many ways as a result of the Reformation. And I suppose if there was any one great idea, any one reading of scripture that cracked the dam of Christian thought, it was Luther's claim that we are saved by grace and not by works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul writes in Ephesians 2. By grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of any works, lest anyone should boast. We are saved by grace alone. For 1,500 years, the church had been pushing this notion on her people that if you really want to be sure that you're saved, maybe you should pay more money. Maybe you should put in more time. Maybe you need to say some more prayers. Maybe you should confess more sins. Only then you would know of your salvation and the salvation of those who have already died who are living in purgatory. Luther pounded on the door and he said, no, this is wrong. We are saved by grace alone. Which is to say that we get to live life not with any sense of what we have to do, but with every sense of what we get to do. 
The Reformation showed people what it meant to be in a relationship with God. That life with Jesus was not about what we had to do, but what we get to do. It was the Reformation that helped civilization see that from the very beginning, our entire existence is all about the gifts that God has given us. We live our lives out of giftedness, not out of guilt, not out of, out of grumbling over what we have to do. Life is lived out of giftedness. Life is lived out of an appreciation for what you have been given. And that means going back to the beginning of life, and seeing the treasure that you have been given in your body and in your soul that you made absolutely no contribution to it. You didn't pick your brain. You didn't pick your personality or your IQ or your talents or your abilities. You didn't contribute to it. It was a gift given to you by God. Whatever life we live, we live out of giftedness. Our life here on earth and our eternal life is a pure gift. That's the first half of the Reformation story. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now the second half of the Reformation story said this, joy. Real joy comes when you recognize your giftedness. When you recognize the giftedness of your life, all of a sudden life becomes not a matter of what you have to do, but it becomes a matter of what you get to do. I get to live in response to the giver. I get to live in response to the gift that God gave to me. A joyful child of God receives the gift and says, look what I get to do. I get to live in response to God's grace. I get to employ the gift that was given me. I get to live my life in gratitude. And here's the amazing thing of getting to instead of having to. Nobody can tell you what you have to do. No preacher, no teacher, no parent, no child, no TV evangelist. You were born to do what you will with what you have. Paul says of this good news in Ephesians 3, I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Of this good news, of this grace alone, I have become a servant. Not because I have to, but because I get to. The story is told of two girls and their family who were given the chance to meet Beverly Sills before she performed at the Metropolitan Opera. And after a brief visit and a picture, the father said, okay, girls, we need to go to our seats because Miss Sills has to sing tonight. And almost immediately, Beverly Sills replied, no, I don't have to sing tonight. And the father protested, but it says here that you're singing in the brochure, in the bulletin. He said, no, I don't have to sing tonight. I get to sing tonight. I get to stand before a hall of people. I get to use my voice like few others get to. I will never have to sing. I always get to sing. Can we get personal for a moment? 500 years ago, a monk pounded 95 theses 
into a church door in Germany. And the result is that 500 years later, there is this place here in Caldwell, a place that we call church. I've been able to go to church ever since I was a baby. And it was at this place called church that I was told that God loves me unconditionally, that God, God loved me into being, that God loves me into living, and that God's love will be with me till the end of time. Church is a place where I go to be reminded that life is about the love of God, receiving it and giving it. Not because I had to, but because I get to. The church is the place that I get to go and sing, not because I have to, and certainly not because I have a good voice. But I do get to sing to the Lord a joyful song. Church is the place that I get to go and pray and to listen, to read stories of Jesus and his love. As a child, I got to go to Sunday school. As a teenager, I got to go to youth group where I could have good, clean fun, a place that I got to go so that I wasn't in other places doing stupid things. Church is a place that I got to find out that life wasn't just about me. It's a place that I was taught the teachings of Jesus, that life is about my neighbor, about people who might not have had the same cards dealt to them as I had dealt to me. That life is more about how many cards that everybody has in their hands. And if I had a lot of cards in my hands, I got to share what I have with others who might not have so much. Church is a place that we got to go in order to laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. It's where I got to go to find out what God wanted to do with my life, which ultimately resulted in me becoming a pastor. Of course, there were times that I thought that I didn't want to go, that I had to go. And then I read things like a friend of mine who has a connection with the persecuted church in China. And he posts all kinds of stories of Christians being imprisoned for their faith. And while we may feel that we have to come to church, we should not never take for granted what we do on Sunday mornings. You know, it does make me wonder all of the statistics out there are pointing to religion dying in America. And it baffles me. Unless, of course, it is something that you feel that you have to do. If church is something or somewhere that you feel you have to go, if money is something that you feel you have to give, if time is something that you feel you have to sacrifice, you might be missing the point. When we become a part of a church, we get to be a part of a place that makes a difference. And First Pres makes a difference. In a moment, you'll have the opportunity to come forward and dedicate your pledges to the ministry here in Caldwell in 2020. You may have heard that we are facing a significant budget deficit this year. It's true. We are entering into an interim process, a time when First Pres will discern its future, and we get to invest ourselves in that process, in time, and in our pledges. And in a moment, I will make my pledge right alongside of yours. I will tell you that my pledge is 5% of my gross salary. I would like to do more, but I am a one-income single parent. 
a child in college, and another who lives with me that I support. Friends, I get to make this pledge in thankfulness for what God has done for me. In these next moments, might we wonder what our response will be to the gift that God has given to each one of us? We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace alone, it's where it started and it's where it will end. We said it 500 years ago, we're still saying it today because good news never gets old. And every morning we get to wake up and we get to take that gift again and say, what do I get to do today? What do I get to do?